case we haven't met, my name is Paul. And like has already been said, Happy New Year. It's hard to believe. Yeah, we're a week into the new year, into 2024, January 7th, I think, today. And I got to ask you the question, how are those New Year's resolutions going for you so far? Uh, wow. A lot of people don't like me right now. I can see that. I got to tell you, I've already failed on one of mine because, uh, you know, towards the end of last year, I got to thinking, all right, Paul, you know, you, you, you really, it's not necessary. You don't need to eat bowls of cereal at like 9, 10 at night. It's just, you don't need to do that. So I thought, all right, I'm going to commit 2024. I can kind of cut that part of my life out a little bit. I can, I can deal with that. And so, well, I got to tell you, a few days ago, I went to the cupboard and I was going to just throw something out. It was about 9.30 at night. And uh, I get to the cupboard, and there, eye level on the shelf, broadside to me, and I think the kitchen light was kind of bouncing off of it, so it had a bit of a glow, was a box of chocolate rice krispies. I don't know if you've ever had those. I mean, those things are so good. And without thinking, I lost all sense of reality. I go to the cupboard, I get a bowl, I pour me a big bowl of cocoa rice krispies, and there I go. And you know the best thing about cocoa rice krispies is this. Ah, <laughs> When you done, they're chocolate milk at the bottom. So I remember sitting there on the couch, and I got chocolate milk spilt down my beard with an empty bowl, and I'm thinking, oh, snap. <laughs> that one didn't last long in 2024. But thankfully, each day is a new day, and I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm four days out from making those 9, 10 o'clock nights to get a bowl of cereal, cocoa, rice, crispy. So there you go. I changed it to 8.30. <laughs> Somebody said that in the first service. I was like, yeah, you got me there. So anyway, all joking aside, I trust uh, the new year is treating you well. And, and uh, perhaps you heard Justin's message last week. And it was a great message. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to check it out online because he really challenged us to think about instead of what, what do I need to do as the year progresses, what, more, what is God's plan for me? That was the challenge. And I hope you thought about that. Because that's a question we should ask ourselves all the time, really every single day. We should ask the Lord, okay, what's your agenda for me today? What do you have for me today? And the other thing that Justin challenged us on was to faithfully follow God's word. And I, I really believe that's a New Year's resolution that we all need to take to heart. And even if you miss a day, the nice thing is each day is a new day. You begin again. And I mentioned this during our Christmas Eve services, but we here at Faithy, one of our core values is the word of God. We teach from the scriptures each Sunday. We'll do that today. We encourage you to study the scriptures on your own throughout the week and in the context of a small group. It's important. It's a big deal. And so as we move into the new year, I also want to give you all a heads up as to where we're going as a church body. Because in February, we're going to go verse by verse through the book of Philippians. That's what we're going to do. And once again, we'll provide those scripture journals for you to help in that study. But before we get there... We want to spend uh, about a month talking about the author of Philippians. I think doing that adds to a richness of our study of the book, helps with the context. We did that with Peter, and we studied 1 Peter. We're going to do that with Philippians. And many of you may know who the author of Philippians is. You may have heard his name. And if you haven't, that's okay, because we'll be talking about him for the next several weeks. But his name is the Apostle Paul. And like I said, somebody you may have heard of, because really after Jesus himself Arguably, the Apostle Paul, Paul is the most influential, influential person in Christianity. I mean, it's the Apostle Paul who wrote nearly, if not more than half the books in the New Testament. 13 to 14 books in the New Testament are written by the Apostle Paul, including the one we'll be studying in February. The Apostle Paul, he was born in a place called Tarsus. He was born around the time of Jesus, after Jesus, but most likely in the same decade. By birth, the Apostle Paul, he was a Jew, descended from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He certainly was. And the things that I'm talking about regarding Paul, there should be in your bulletin a little insert. You see the Saul of Tarsus bio. That's for you to take. That'll help you kind of track. You don't have to write all this down. But like I said, he was a Hebrew of Hebrew by, by conviction, by conviction, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. We'll certainly talk about that. By citizenship, he was a Roman. But by the grace of Jesus of Nazareth, Paul became a Christian. Became a Christian. And it's his conversion that we're going to take 
a couple weeks to talk about. We're going to talk about it this week and next. And then we're going to spend three weeks talking about the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, which will take us to a place called Philippi. And that's where we're going. But before, before we get too far, it's interesting because after his conversion, that's really when Paul began to go more by his Roman name, Paulus, Paulos, or Paul. But pre-conversion, pre-meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was known more by his Hebrew name and place of birth. That's why you hear and you see in your worship guides, Saul of Tarsus. He had the name given to him by his parents, named after the first king of Israel, King Saul. Saul of Tarsus. And arguably speaking, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is the most miraculous conversion contained in the Scriptures. Saul to Paul. And I think you'll see why, at least by the end of today. And to help us get into the mind of Saul just a little bit, Saul of Tarsus, I want to begin with, a, with an illustration. I think it helps a little bit us understand kind of where Saul of Tarsus was operating from. Because, you know, it was several years ago, I was working for Corporate America, a Fortune 50 company, and I had to travel to California to do a business presentation. It was a pretty important meeting. It was an important time in my career. And I was doing this presentation with a few of my peers. And I remember talking to my peers a couple weeks before the meeting, before the presentation was to take place. And we were discussing it, kind of making a plan. And one of them made the comment like, hey, the meeting starts on Tuesday. And I was like, uh-uh, no, the meeting starts on Wednesday. I know it starts, I'm right. I know it starts on Wednesday. There's no doubt in my mind. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. So sincere in my belief, sincere meaning that I truly believed, I genuinely, genuinely believed that the meeting started on Wednesday. I didn't even bother looking at the itinerary. I didn't have to. There was no use talking to me. So I was right. Well, the week of the meeting comes along. Monday of the week comes along, and I'm like, all right, later that afternoon, I'm thinking, I better look at the itinerary, better make a plan for my week, maybe, maybe understand what's happening on the day when I make the presentation. And wouldn't you know it, when does the meeting start? Tuesday. And I look at my flight itinerary, and I had missed my plane because it left that morning. And my stomach hit the ground, along with my jaw. I didn't feel so good. I didn't feel as good, you know, like when I eat a bowl of Cocoa Rice Krispies. I wasn't feeling all that good right then. So I scramble, make another flight, couldn't fly where I was supposed to, had to fly somewhere else, take a taxi, get to the presentation. I'm late, goes terrible. You talk about eating humble pie. So I thought I was right. Turns out I wasn't at all. I was sincerely wrong. Sincerely wrong. You ever been in a place where you thought you were right, 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 but you were actually sincerely wrong, 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 wrong? Probably all of us have. You don't need to raise your hand. Maybe it wasn't a business meeting. Perhaps, you know, there's lots of ways, right? Maybe you were driving down the road and you thought, I don't need Google Maps. I don't need GPS. I don't even need an old-fashioned map because I know where I'm going. I got this. And I see some, I see some uh, wives out there looking at their husbands. And you got the passenger in the car and they're like, do you really know where you're going? And you're like, yeah, I got this. I'm right, right, right. Well, it turns out you ain't right. You wrong. This year I celebrate, uh, Janet and I celebrate being married 25 years together. Fantastic wife. I love you. Yeah. She deserves a round of applause, let me tell you. And, uh, you know, you think I would have gotten this, but more than just a few times, I've found myself, more than just a few, I got to tell you, I've found myself saying, babe, look, I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. And you know what happens, right? Uh-uh. Sincerely wrong. Guys, we better figure this out. So I'm talking to the married men here for just a moment or any young guy that one day may be married. Here's a little advice for you. When you think you right, 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 you ain't. You wrong, wrong, wrong. You sincerely wrong. So there you go. A little free advice from Paul McClintock, whatever date it is, January 7th, 2024. Saul of Tarsus. Oh, yeah. He thought he was right. He thought he was sincerely right. That was before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Make no mistake, he was sincere in his beliefs. Oh, he, was, he thought he was sincerely right as a religious zealot. He, was, he thought he was sincerely doing the will of God before he met Jesus. He thought he was sincerely in the right because he thought he was sincerely right. But it turns out Acts 9 comes along and we find that he learns that he was actually sincerely wrong. That's the problem we're dealing with today. 
Sometimes we get into that mode thinking, "Ah, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. We get impacted in different ways when actually, no, we're living sincerely wrong. And I'm not just talking about going to a business meeting. I'm not talking about driving down the road or even in relationships. I'm talking about staying spiritually sharp. I'm talking about guarding our hearts and minds because pretty quickly we live in a world where culture can influence our thinking, our living, and our souls. And we pretty quickly, maybe not even realizing it, we are running around thinking, yeah, I'm right, 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 when actually we're living sincerely wrong. It's a problem we're going to be dealing with. That's what we're going to be talking about. So let's see what God's word has to say about this for us today. But before we do, would you join me in prayer? Lord, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for your patience. Thanks for your mercy. Thanks that you deal with people who are pretty stubborn. Thanks that you're in the business of transforming us to make us look more like your son. Holy Spirit, all we really need today is to hear from you and your word, so we invite you into this place. Would you fill it? Would you transform us? Jesus, you're king. This is your church. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, before we get to Acts 9, we're first introduced to Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 7 towards the end of that chapter. I mean, it's a chapter that talks a lot about a man named Stephen. Stephen, a man full of God's grace, his power, because he's full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen just finished giving a message that cut to the heart of the members of the Sanhedrin. And after he gives this message, he looks up into the heavenlies and he says, look, the sky is open, the heaven is open, and there is the Son of God, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of the Father. Well, after Stephen says this, it really sends the members of the Sanhedrin into a fury. They drag him out into the street and they stone him to death. That's what takes place. And, and I think it's kind of easy sometimes to look and say, oh, yeah, Stephen, he was stoned to death. Bummer. And just kind of move on. Now, I don't want to make this overly graphic, but I also don't want to water down or sanitize the scriptures because here's what happened. I mean, they drug him out into the street. A crowd gets around him. He's sitting there, and they're pelting him with stones. They're picking up rocks. Some of the stones hit their mark. Some of them miss. Most of them hit him. They're hitting his body. Bones are being broken, ribs, deep contusions, bruises, welts. Some hit his head. This happens until he dies. Horrible. Torture. Brutal. And all the while, we see in Acts 7.58 that the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. There's our Saul of Tarsus. Those who are doing the stoning of Stephen are laying their their jackets, their coats at the feet of Saul as a sign of respect to him. And we we learn a little later that Saul's the very one who gave permission, who authorized the killing of Stephen. He's the organizer of the event. There he is, Saul of Tarsus, not just witnessing it, but allowing it, approving of it. And after the stoning of Stephen, we find that there's a great persecution that breaks out against the church there in Jerusalem. And guess who the leader of the persecution is? Yeah, Saul of Tarsus. Chapter 8, verse 3 of Acts says this, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He was destroying the church. That's what he was trying to do. It's interesting that word destroy was used a lot to describe how a wild boar, a wild pig, would ravage, turn up, and destroy a garden. Does that give you a little bit of a mental picture of what that might have looked like? Well, if not, I've got a little video to show you, and I think this will help. Check this out. You got an idea now, right? <laughs> you know, was, when I was researching this a little bit, I found that in the agricultural world, sometimes people use pigs to rototill their garden. You ever heard of that? Something you could try. Then you got to deal with the pig. You could always go the bacon route if you had to do. Anyway, sorry. 
digressing a little bit. But you can get the picture. Saul was like a wild boar, like a wild pig destroying. He was nosing house by house, turning things upside down, looking for Christians, looking for those who were part of the way. That's what he was doing. He wasn't interested in having a friendly conversation, trying to persuade people to his way of thinking. Oh, no, not at all. You see, he was, Stephen wasn't the only killing that he approved of. We see later in Acts that Saul of Tarsus threw many people into prison and persecuted them to death. Saul of Tarsus. You know, as I think about him, I couldn't help but think of a modern-day leader in the radical Islamic branch called ISIS. Somebody bent on killing as many Christians and stamping out Christianity as much as they possibly can. Look, they're sincere in their goal. They're sincere in their beliefs. They are clearly sincerely wrong. That's kind of what I thought about a little bit as I'm studying this man, Saul of Tarsus. That's who really the Apostle Paul was in many ways. That's the picture of him before he meets Jesus. Saul of Tarsus. And it's interesting, too, as I thought about this, you know, his goal, along with obviously stamping out, stomping out Christianity, destroying the church, he didn't want to see the gospel spread at all. Not, not at all. He wanted it eradicated, exterminated, destroyed. But isn't it amazing that really, in a lot of ways, he's the very catalyst for the spreading of the gospel beyond Jerusalem because all those persecuted Christians are leaving that place. They're scattered throughout Samaria, all over, and the gospel's spreading. You can't make this up. This is good, isn't it? This is the word of God. God's plan. God's plan will never be thwarted. And, and, and the question you kind of have to wonder is, why, what's, what's Saul's deal? Why does he want to why does he want to do this and destroy the church? Why is he so bent on, on, on destroying Christianity, the early church? Well, I remember in the beginning I said that he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he, he had such a, a brilliant legal mind. I mean, his parents sent him to, uh, at a young age, probably around the age of 13, to Jerusalem to study under one of the most brilliant legal-minded men, Jewish men of the time, a guy named Gamaliel. That's Saul of Tarsus. He said about himself in Galatians 1, 1 that, or in chapter 1, that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many his own age, probably beyond many even that were older than him. Saul of Tarsus. He was a zealot to maintain and protect the traditions of his father, traditions, Saul of Tarsus. He, 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 he even said this about himself, that regarding the law... He was perfect. Saul of Tarsus. You see, Saul and many of the other religious elite, Pharisees, Sadducees, they based their righteousness on themselves, what they could do on their own work. It wasn't a righteousness based in faith in God. Saul was more interested in protecting the purity of a religion and guarding traditions versus embracing the truth. And you know, I got to say, I am so glad we don't deal with that in the big C church anymore, right? <laughs> That's an uncomfortable laugh. Seems like it's pretty easy. A lot of churches that all of a sudden religious ideas and tradition trump truth. I am grateful. I am grateful for Faithy Church and the legacy here. I'm grateful for the legacy, and I'm grateful for this church that we've kept the main thing, the main thing, and by the grace of God, may that always be the case. Because I'll tell you what, we've got plenty of religious people in this world. And I don't ever want to be, a, I don't ever want to be around or part of a church full of religious people. May we always be a church by the grace of God full of people who are surrendered followers of Jesus Christ. But you know, the worst thing, the worst thing that you could say to Saul or one of those other religious elite, the worst thing that you could say to them at that time was this, Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. 
They considered that the most blasphemous thing to say that Jesus, oh yes, he's alive. You see, to them, the Messiah, the Savior, he would never humble himself to a place to become a servant and die on the cross. No, not to them. Yet that's what the Apostle Paul's going to write about when we study Philippians. In their mind, God would never put on skin and die a criminal's death by being cursed on a tree. No way. <laughs> uh-uh. That's why saying that Jesus Christ was alive and well was sheer blasphemy to them. It was. That's why Saul was trying to destroy the church and stamp out Christianity. That's what he was doing. They missed they refused to see or they ignored how all the Old Testament and all the law pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. They missed or refused to see how all the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, including his birth, death, and resurrection. You see, Saul of Tarsus, oh yeah, he thought he was sincerely, sincerely right, but he was sincerely wrong because he missed the resurrection. He denied Jesus until he met him on the road to Damascus. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, if you're not already there. I have these verses in your worship guide as well. We're going to do a high-level flyover this week, and we'll continue with Saul's conversion next week. And in Acts chapter 9, Luke, the author of Acts, introduces us to Saul's conversion. We also see it in two more places in Acts, chapter 22 and chapter 26, the fact that Luke talks about Saul's conversion three different times tells us at least a couple of things. A, it's important. And B, each time he talks about his conversion, he adds some detail because that's how he wrote about it. So instead of us flipping chapter to chapter, I included these nine verses along with some key points and key pieces from those other passages, chapter 22 and chapter 26, should be written in blue there in your worship guide, and I hope that makes sense. I think it gives us kind of a complete picture, a more complete picture of what was taking place. So follow along if you would. Bibles, worship guides, we've got the words on the screen as I read. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men, women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. We're told in chapter 26, it was about noon, the light was brighter than the sun. Saul fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We also see in chapter 26 that that voice said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul replies, who are you, Lord? And then Saul hears this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus of Nazareth. He replied. And then after Jesus' reply, Saul asked him, what shall I do, Lord? Jesus said, get up, go into the city, and you'll be led and told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And then we see the brilliance of the light had blinded him. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Really, you know, the last time we see Saul was chapter 8, verse 3, we talked about earlier. And we pick up, really, with his behavior right here, chapter 9, verse 1, because we see that he's... He, 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 he's, he's uttering, he's, he's saying, he's speaking, he's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And the literal translation of those words, breathing out, means that he's actually breathing in and breathing out. The very life, the very life breath of Saul, the very core of who he was, was about destroying the church. Saul of Tarsus. So obsessed was he with that that he would search out and hunt for Christians all over the place, including a place called Damascus. Now, Damascus was a, was a city that had a, lot of, a large Jewish population. Scholars believe there were up to maybe 40 synagogues alone in, in Damascus. And many of those Jews were converting from Judaism to Christianity. And this isn't good with Saul, so he takes a little posse. They head up to Damascus. Now, Damascus is about 130 miles north of where Saul was at in Jerusalem. It'd almost be like us taking off from Billings and walking up to Lewistown, Montana. For them, it would have taken about six days. You see how motivated he is? He's not good with persecuting the church there just in Jerusalem. He'll go to the ends of the earth. He's going to Damascus. He'll go wherever he has to to try to stop the spread of the gospel. That's what he's doing. 
as I thought about Saul, kind of reminded me, maybe you've read the book, maybe you've seen the movie Les Miserables. Anybody seen that or heard about that? There's a, there's a protagonist in there, a guy named Javert. He's a keeper of the law. He's a policeman. And it seems like he's bent. The goal in his life, he'll go to the ends of the earth to catch this criminal, a criminal named Jean Valjean, a criminal who's a criminal because he stole a loaf of bread. Javert, in a way, kind of gives me a picture of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, he'll go wherever he has to. He, he, he's focused on capturing and imprisoning men and women, people who are part of something called the way. And you'll notice how the W is capitalized, the way. You see that in the scriptures. You see that in your scripture, the scriptures there in your worship guides. The way is used only like this here in Acts, and it's used six different times. And it's capitalized because it's really referring to Christians in the early church. And I thought that was kind of a cool way to refer to Christianity as the way. Because as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, what that means is, is that it's a way of living. It's, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's practicing the ways of the one we follow. It's a continuous thing. Obviously, that's what we've talked about many times in the past. And, and, and Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to the Father except through Christ. He is the way. The way is narrow. The road is narrow. But it's available for all people. You see, Saul was going the wrong way as he went to Damascus, certainly spiritually. And God was silent for most of his trip. We don't see any indication that other than God was silent for most of the journey for Saul of Tarsus. I mean, perhaps God was silent for 120 of the 130 miles. Perhaps God was silent for the first five of the six days. But as Saul and the others approach Damascus, well, God shows up in the person of Jesus Christ, and they are enveloped by the light of Christ. And we're told that this was, all took place around noon, when the sun is the brightest, the sun in the sky, and it's hot, it's illuminating all things there in that Middle Eastern climate. Yet the light of Christ is so bright that it outshines the sun itself. Brighter than that, more brilliant than that. And you know, Saul was about to learn something we spent last month talking about. He was about to learn that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and the darkness will never overcome him. He's about to learn that. And just like the noon sun there in the Middle East climate illuminated everything and there's no shadows... The light of Christ was about to illuminate the dark place that Saul was in. Saul had built all these structures in his life around religious ideas, around self-righteousness based on works and being good enough and, and the law. And that was about to come crashing down all around him and a new foundation was being built, a foundation on the person of Jesus Christ because there's only righteousness in him. May he be our foundation. Saul was about ready to learn that. And I think it's clear that Saul understands something supernatural, something divine is happening because the light envelops him and the others and he falls on the ground in appropriate posture. And he hears the voice say this, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that's an interesting statement. It's kind of unique. Like what exactly is kicking against the goads all about? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you were wondering. Because it's an agricultural reference. And a goad was a long pointed stick. And it was used to poke at the oxen to get them moving in the right direction or to get them moving to begin with. There's a good picture of one. And you can see, uh, you can't see quite the point on that, but they were sharp. And, it, and if an ox kicked against that goad, well, you know what would happen to the ox. It would just hurt them. They'd be hurt, more hurt unless they were, you know, willing to obey. So that's kind, of, that's kind of a goad. Now, has anybody ever used a goad by chance? I didn't think I'd see many hands, but perhaps, perhaps you've used something that looks like this. You know what this is? Yeah, it's a cattle prod. And I, I've gotten over the years to help out at my, uh, the opportunity to help out at my in-law's ranch. And, and we use one of these to kind of help move or something like it uh, to help move the calves up the chute or, or move the cows around. And the cool thing about this is not only is it a little bit pointed, but there's some electric nodes or something at the end of this, so you get a little bit of a shock. You know, I could, I could, probably, I could probably use a, a volunteer right now to maybe illustrate how this... I see some hands already going up. See how... Earlier, I, I, I kind of voluntold Steve Strutt, so... Uh, yeah, all right, never mind. 
I, I don't need that. But you get the picture, right? You're moving cows, the calves around. And the more they fight, the more they kick, the more they resist, the more they're going to hurt. Hold on to that. That's what kicking against the goads is all about. That's what's being referenced there. And so Saul responds to the voice with a question in verse 5 because he asks, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds. He answers, said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. In an instant, in a moment, Saul's entire worldview was flipped upside down. The most blasphemous thing you could say to him was now his new reality. Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. Now Saul was being poked, prodded, sent in a new direction. He could kick against the goads, but it would only result in more injury for himself, or he could receive the gospel, the good news, that Jesus was alive, he's on the throne, and he is Lord. <laughs> he had a choice to make. He realized that it happened. Jesus' resurrection is fact. It took place in man's history. It happened. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus only adds more and more credibility and validity because it took place. You know, there was a guy named Frank Morrison. He has a story kind of like Lee Strobel's, if you know of Lee Strobel's story. But Frank Morrison was a brilliant, legal-minded man. He was an atheist. And he set out to, to prove that his ways of thinking and being an atheist were correct. And he went, he set out to disprove two things. He wanted to disprove the resurrection of Jesus and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And you know what he found? They happened. It took place in history. They're fact. And so Frank Morrison became a Christian and an author. Here it is. I want you to, I want you to catch this. Christianity is based on objective historical events. Things that happen. The Bible is about our God the God, the only true living God, interceding on man's behalf during our history through key redemptive events like the birth of Jesus, like the life of Jesus, like the death of Jesus, like his resurrection, like the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Are you with me? You see, when somebody is, is, is poked and prodded with the gospel... The Holy Spirit. There's a choice they have to make. They can, they can kick against the goads, kick against the truth. It's only going to hurt more in the long run, or they can receive it and find healing. That's what we're dealing with. And like I mentioned a few minutes ago, Saul's conversion happens suddenly. There's no indication as he's going down the road to Damascus or up to Damascus, that there's been any change in his life. I mean, he's breathing murderous threats. He's a bad dude. He, he even refers to himself as one, among the sinners. He's the worst. We can see that in a lot of ways. Probably wouldn't want to hang out with him, especially if you're a Christian. Not a good idea. There's no indication that he's going any step in the right direction. That is until God gets a hold of him. and flips his world upside down. Here's something I want you to hear today. You might have a son. You might have a daughter. Mom, dad, friend, co-worker, family member who is living far from God. And it seems like in every way in their life, they're walking down the wrong path. It seems like there's zero indication in their life, none whatsoever, that they're taking any step in the right direction. Keep praying for them. Because God, in an instant, in a moment, can get a hold of them and flip their world upside down. It's what he did with Saul. He can do that with anybody. Keep praying for him. Be encouraged by that. And be challenged by that. Because, you know, I think it's pretty easy to look at our neighbor <laughs> or look at some of those people in our life and think there's no hope for them. There's no help in them. They're too far gone. I know I've found myself thinking that at times about people. And when we get in that mode of thinking, we're just being sincerely wrong because nobody is beyond the grace of God. Saul certainly wasn't. Keep praying for him. There is hope. There is hope. You know, after Jesus said to Saul that I'm Jesus of Nazareth, he also said, Saul, I'm the one that you're persecuting. 
Now, there's no indication in the scriptures that Saul directly persecuted Jesus during our Lord's earthly ministry. There's nothing to tell us that. So you have to ask the question, what is Jesus talking about when he says, Saul, you're persecuting me? You see, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're persecuting the followers of the way. You're persecuting my disciples. You're persecuting Christians. You're persecuting the church. You're persecuting me. It's like Jesus is saying, you mess with the church. You mess with my people. You're messing with me. Isn't it something that we have a Savior who's one with his people? It's as if he shares in our grief and our sorrows with us. That's what he's saying. I don't care whether you're a high schooler, younger than that, older than that, college, career. I don't care where you're at in your life. Whatever you're walking through today, whatever you may be facing, I want you to know you have a Savior whose name is Jesus, who's right there with you, and he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. Be encouraged by that. Oh, we can't even begin to understand the depths of his compassion, his mercy, and his love for us. Be encouraged by that. After Saul asked Jesus, who are you, Lord? He asked him another question. There's two questions he asked him because he goes on and says, now what should I do, Lord? What's next? What should I do? And those two questions, I believe, represent what it means to be saved. You see, that first question, who is God? We all got to answer that. And you better get that one right. You better not be sincerely wrong about that one. You got to be sincerely right about that one because God's not Mother Nature, not ourselves, not some kind of mystical force. God's not who we want him to be. We don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus Christ because that's who God is. Jesus is God. He's the answer. The answer to who are you, Lord, the answer is let's all say his name together. Jesus. He came. God with skin on to redeem broken people like Saul of Tarsus, like you and me. Died on the cross and he rose three days later. And for those who by faith receive him as Savior, that means the next question that naturally we should ask is, what do you want me to do, Lord? It's kind of back to what Justin talked about last week. What's next for me, God? What do you want me to do, Lord? You see, true belief, true salvation, true faith should result in a changed life, going a different direction, change of behavior what that looks like it's 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 a posture of submitting not going our own way surrendering to jesus as lord and as king it's him being lord over our lives because whether we surrender to him or not he is he's lord and king that's a daily posture that's a daily thing isn't it well that's that's what it means to be a christian that's what that looks like that's why our mission statement here at faith e church says this becoming fully surrendered disciples who love god love others and share jesus that's what we're about. Loving God, loving others. Got to get loving God right. First question. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus. Love others should naturally flow out of us. And like, like, those, like those Christians who are being dispersed out of Jerusalem, we should be dispersed out of here and go and share Jesus. Love God, love others, share Jesus. That's our command. That's our mission. And that's what it means to be on mission for him, and it's what Saul was being prepared to do. After Saul asked, what shall I do, Lord? Jesus tells him to get up and continue to go to Damascus. And then you'll be told what to do. He doesn't have a clear plan at this point. Just go, just go. And we see a submission, a surrender on the account of Saul of Tarsus. This This is where I believe his conversion takes place because he gets up and goes. He listens. He goes, and when he gets up, he realizes that he's been, now he's now blind. He's blind. He's blind from the light, the brilliant light. He's light blind. And as I thought about this, you know, maybe it's just me. I'm not sure. But does it seem like the headlights of cars are getting brighter and brighter? Does anybody else know? Is that just me? Is that? I, I think I own nothing but old vehicles, so mine don't have this. But I've noticed some of them are like, they are bright. When I'm driving at night, like for a moment, I'm blinded when I drive by some of those vehicles. And, and, and that's kind of what I thought of when I thought about Saul being light-blinded. But he's not blinded by the brilliance of a headlight of a car. He's not even blinded by the brilliance of the sun itself. He's blinded by the Son of God and his brilliance. That's what takes place. He's blinded. Much more brilliant than any of those others. And it's interesting. The companions that were with him, they saw the light, but they weren't blinded by it. You see, the fact that there were credible eyewitnesses to what took place for Saul 
and his conversion further validates that it happened. It took place in history. It's fact. Saul left for Damascus as a conquering leader, and he's led into Damascus by the hand because he's blind as a humbled man. And Saul had to be humbled in order for God to be able to use him as a vessel. And you know what? Every one of us is going to be humbled. Oh, yeah. We can humble ourselves, or God will do the humbling. For Saul, he was blind, blind for three days, led into Damascus by those others. We're told he didn't eat or drink anything. It's the most intense form of what it looks like to fast, seeking God's face in a posture, in a rhythm of repentance. A lot more to Saul of Tarsus a conversion, but that's, that's where we'll leave off today, to be continued. You'll have to come back next week for sure. But you know, let's talk about what this means for us. Because I have to wonder, what was going through his, his mind as he sat there in utter darkness? He couldn't see anything. The man who was in spiritual darkness, at least at one point, is now physically blind and sitting there in darkness. What was he thinking? What was going through his mind? I bet for the first time he prayed. I mean, I bet he really prayed. I have to wonder, did he think about Stephen and the stoning of Stephen and the death of Stephen? Did he think about Stephen's words when he looked up into the heavenly throne room and he saw Jesus? Because the final thing that Saul saw was Jesus himself, and he had three days to think about our Savior. Saul's conversion is indeed unique. He saw the resurrected Christ in all of his glory, and he received direct revelation from him. None of us can say that. That's not our story. My story looks a lot different than Saul's. Maybe yours does too. I mean, I became a Christian. There was no bright light. I became a Christian when I was like five or six. That's when I began to follow Jesus. But you know, each of our conversions, each of our stories, I believe is just as miraculous because we have a God who met us where we were at in the person of Jesus Christ and his spirit poked and prodded us because he, he's a God who pursues us. And he doesn't leave us where we're at. He continues to pursue us, continues to move us along, to transform us to look more like Jesus. You know what that's called? Grace. Grace. And every day, we need to stay in that humble posture, living in the grace of God. Every day, that's important. One way I try to stay in that posture is before my feet hit the floor in the morning, I try to say the Lord's Prayer. It keeps me focused. I feel more on Him throughout the day and His kingdom, especially when I say, Lord, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. That might be something you put into practice as well as you begin this new year. Start each day with the Lord's Prayer saying that. And it was interesting, recently I read something from Alan Redpath. He's an evangelist, author. He wrote the book, Making of a Man of God. And he said this, and it kind of hit me when I read these words because he said, before you pray, really, Lord, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, my kingdom go. That's surrender. That's letting go. That's submission. And it's, but it's humbling, isn't it? But we're all going to be humbled one way or another. For Saul, he was humbled. And none of us can say that we religiously uh, zealots that persecuted and tried to destroy the early church. None of us can say that we operated from a place like that where we thought, boy, we are sincerely right, only to find that we were sincerely wrong after we met Jesus on the road to Damascus. None of us, that's not our story. But I bet every one of us can think about a time, or maybe it's a time right now in your life where you're like, you know what, I'm right, 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 but you're actually living sincerely wrong. As I thought about this, I was reminded of a conversation I had with somebody a few months ago. And I was talking to them and just kind of sharing with that individual about how I can get pretty competitive sometimes. Now, hear me out. Being competitive and winning and all of that, that's not, that's not a bad thing. That can be a good thing. But sometimes in our flesh nature, I know for me, I can take that and twist it and it can become a kind of a pretty bad thing. I mean... I can get kind of like stupid competitive about dumb things, the wrong things, things that don't matter. If you ever played a game with me, you know what I'm talking about. 
But I can take it even further than that. I can think in myself, I'm going to crush the competition because I want to win, win, win. And sometimes that impacts the other areas of my life because I want to be right, right, right. You know what that's called? That's called about Paul's little kingdom. That's called being sincerely wrong. And the person I was talking to said, Paul, maybe it's about time you let God sanctify that area of your life. Meaning, maybe it's time to repent, give it to the Lord, give it to Jesus, and allow him to transform you to look more like him. And I didn't like when he said that to me. How dare he, right? But it's what I needed to hear. In that moment, it kind of felt like I was getting poked, prodded, jabbed with a bit of a stick. But I've found that when I operate in that mode, all I'm doing is hurting myself because I'm kicking against the goads. We're going to end with a time of communion. And we'll wrap up. In just a moment, I'm going to have the ushers come forward. I think this is an appropriate way to end the teaching time today and kind of kick off the series, kick off the year, is take communion again this week. We did last week, and, and we'll do it again. And as we prepare for communion, first let me just say, it's only for believers, for Christians. For those who are part of the way, who follow Jesus, if you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just ask that you not take communion today. Also, if you're not, well, you can take that first step. You can be a follower today. I don't care how bad your life looks. God's grace was enough for Saul. It's enough for you. You can take that first step by just saying right now, eyes open, eyes closed, whatever in your heart, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thanks for paying the price for my sins and dying on the cross. You can do that right now. And you can go ahead and say to him, Lord, what do you want, me, what do you want next? Ask him that second question. I'm ready to surrender to you as my king. Ask for his help, and he will. Do that right now. If you make that step of faith, I would just also encourage you to connect with me or somebody else after the service to share that with them, even somebody sitting around you. Share that with somebody if you would. But for all of us, the rest of us who have already taken that step, the question I've got for you is, there's something in your life where you're like, you know, I'm right, 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 but you're living sincerely wrong? It could be that person, that relationship, that person out there that you kind of look down your nose at them, kind of in a pharisaical way, like, you know, I'm a little better than that person. I'm right. They're not. It, it, maybe, maybe there's that really, almost like that competitive illustration I just used, maybe there's this dumb thing in your, that's separating you from somebody else, and it's causing a wedge, and the enemy's using that. Could even be another brother or sister in Christ. You're more concerned about being right than loving your brother, your sister. Allow the Lord to sanctify that. Give it to him during communion time. Or maybe, maybe you know there's something in your life that is sincerely wrong. Take time to deal with it if you would. Because you know what? Just living in that place, all you're doing is hurting yourself by kicking against the goad. So I'm going to have the ushers, if I could, come forward. We'll take communion together. And while it's quiet, would you just take some time with Jesus? Work through what we talked about. Is there something in your life you need to deal with that maybe is sincerely wrong and you've got to give it to him? Got a few moments to do that right now. We also have gluten-free there in the middle. If that could help you or bless you, that's there as well. Like I said, just take some time alone with Jesus at his feet.
Passover meal, the final supper that Jesus had with his disciples. As he was eating with them, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body that's been broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. Likewise, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant. This cup is my blood that's been poured out for you. The old covenant, the old law has now been completed in the blood of Christ. Let's drink of the cup together. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that your life was not taken from you. You freely gave it on our behalf. We are grateful children. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, could I ask you to please stand? Thanks for going in a little overtime with us today. About to, ready to get you out of here. But if you would please stand, there's a couple of things I just want to mention. First, if you could use prayer about anything, it's a privilege for us to pray with you. I'll be up front along with some others. Perhaps you took that step, that first step of following Jesus today. We'd love to hear about it and help you on your new journey. Also, if you came prepared to give tithes and offerings today, we have boxes in the back by the doors. And I want to wrap up before you leave by saying, let's say the Lord's Prayer together if we could. Is that all right? Added one little line, it's there in parentheses. It's about letting go of our kingdoms. It's about surrender. So let's say this together, and then we can get out, get out into the world. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. My kingdom go, and Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Maybe, maybe you say the Lord's Prayer each morning and add that. May my kingdom go. Here's the best part. We all leave this place. We scatter. We get to go out into the world and be like little lights by sharing Jesus. Go in peace. Have a great week. Love you guys.